We're in John chapter 6. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the first 21 verses this morning. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much for your love for us and your love for the world and your love for this community. And Lord, we do pray that you give us a heart for the lost and a heart to share the gospel and love people the way you, you loved them. And as we read your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would equip us. And we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. It shows us the importance of this miracle. Also, John, as he's writing this Gospel, only records seven miracles of Jesus. He focuses on seven signs of Christ. Could you imagine trying to sum up uh, Michael Jordan's basketball career in seven great plays? Or LeBron James' basketball career in seven great plays. I think it's harder to say less than more. Uh, John must have really been praying and thinking to just record seven of Christ's uh, miracles. So, so far in the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus turning water into wine. Then Jesus healing the nobleman's son. And then Jesus healing the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. Then this morning, we're going to see two more miracles. Miracle four and five. Jesus feeding the 5,000, and also Jesus walking on water and calming the storm. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So the Sea of Galilee is also called the Sea of Tiberias. There's some time in between chapter 5 and 6. Chapter 5, Jesus is in Jerusalem. Now he's back in the Galilee region. Mark tells us that John the Baptist had just been beheaded by Herod. Also, the disciples had been sent out to do ministry, their first short-term mission trip, and had come back. In verse 2, then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. This is the peak of the popularity of Christ's ministry. A huge multitude is following Christ, but by the end of the chapter... Most reject Christ and don't want to follow him anymore. Verse 3, And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. I would encourage you sometime today to read Mark chapter 6, because Mark gives us more detail on the feeding of the 5,000. And we're told that the disciples had just come back from their missionary journey. They were excited to spend time with Christ and share what Christ had done, how he had used them. And Jesus says, I want you to come away with me to this deserted place, this place of isolation, a place that's quiet, a place of rest for the disciples. Now, we're going to read very quickly that the multitude comes and Christ has compassion on them. They don't get the rest that they were anticipating. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Rest does not always pan out. (laughs) Have you ever had that experience? Uh, You've planned some rest. You're looking forward to uh, this rest. But then instead of there being rest, maybe there is a great multitude, a great need that is presented before you. It was probably, I don't know, six or seven years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to go on a cruise. It was a Love Like You Mean It cruise by Family Life Ministries. Really, we're looking forward to it. The kids were all set with the grandparents. 
fly to Fort Lauderdale the night before to get on the boat the next morning. As we get into the hotel, my stomach starts to have the urge to regurge and spent the evening up chucking my Chipotle, I think, uh, to be descriptive. Uh, we got on the shuttle in the morning and then sure enough, Amber's stomach started to turn and we get onto the boat and we're not in our room yet. You're waiting to get your room, and we go and say, "Can we please get into our room? My wife's not feeling good, and so she gets into the room, and she gets sick. And as she's getting sick over the intercom system, they're like, "Welcome to the Love Like You Mean It cruise, right?" And <laughs> it was pretty pretty comical. So we get through the stomach flu, and we're feeling so good. We're like, "Oh, we're going to sit out on the sun, sit out on the deck." We're thinking, because it's low altitude, and we're used to the intense sun of Colorado, we don't need sunscreen. <laughs> Rookie move right there. So we get burned pretty good, and so we're like, oh man, this is kind of a, a, a rough trip. We get to the first port, it was Grand Turk, and, and I had this amazing idea that we needed to rent a, a moped, all right? A scooter. So we're like one of the first ones off the boat, and here are the guys ready to, to rent the mopeds. And Amber says, Don't you think we should rent two? And I'm like, Nah, let's rent one. I'm always looking to save money, right? <laughs> always. And, and so I'm like, Yeah, let's just, just rent one. And we're cruising on this moped, and it felt so good. It was so exciting. You're on this island, and just feel so free. And then a few minutes later, we wrecked the moped, right? And Amber got really, really hurt. The, the moped landed on her, and she was really scraped up on her leg and injured her, her ankle. And all of a sudden, we became to realize this was not going to be the rest that we had intended, right? And God met us on the trip, and it ended up being a, a good trip. But that's what I think of when I think of the disciples. They're like, all right, this is going to be a great time of rest, but it didn't pan out for them. Let's see why in, in verse 4. Now the, now the Passover of the Feast of the Jews was near. This is the second time that John mentions the Passover. It would happen yearly. The Passover will be mentioned one more time in the Gospel of John. And it gives us a timetable of Christ's ministry. Three Passovers. His ministry was roughly three years. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing the great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Christ sees the multitude. Mark tells us that he had compassion on them as a sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them. Even though this wasn't the right time, and this was supposed to be a time of rest, Christ's compassion compelled him. When we think about this of local outreach and loving people. It's seeing people through the compassion of Christ and wanting to reach out to them through the compassion of Christ. Jesus turns to Philip and says, I want to feed these guys. Where can we buy bread for them? Philip was from Bethsaida. We know that from John chapter 1. Bethsaida was the closest town. So it makes sense that Jesus would ask Philip uh, this question. And ultimately, Jesus is beginning to expose to the disciples their lack of resources to meet this immense need. In verse 6, but this he said to him, for he himself knew what he would do. But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus is testing Philip. He's testing the rest of the disciples. He already knew that he was going to do this miracle 
of feeding the 5,000. Second thing to note this morning is God will test us and reveal our perspective. Please understand, God doesn't tempt us with evil. He's not going to try to put evil in front of us to tempt us. It's our own evil desires that tempt us. But he will test us for the purpose of revealing the condition of our faith and our perspective of who God is. If you're in school or you remember when you used to be in school, a test reveals your knowledge, doesn't it? The teacher goes through a chapter, says da-da-da-da-da, wah-wah-wah-wah-wah. You do some reading, you do some homework, and then here comes the test. And it reveals whether you understood the information or not. And the same way, here we are tracking with the Lord, studying the scriptures. We're in his school, if you would, and the test reveals well, what is my perspective and where is my, my faith? And it's very valuable that God will, will test us because it shows us something that's very needed in our hearts and in our lives. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. Daily wage was one denarii. 200 denarii would be roughly eight months of wage. Philip gets out his calculator and says, man, even if we had eight months of salary saved up, it couldn't even begin to touch the need. That's quite a bit of money. If you think about whatever your monthly income is, if, if you had eight months of, of income and it was sitting in a bank account, that's quite a bit of money, but it's not even anywhere close to buy everybody lunch. Philip is looking at his own physical resources and the lack thereof instead of looking at God's ability. Aren't you thankful that David, when he faced Goliath, that he didn't get out his calculator and do the ratio of his weight compared to Goliath's weight? We have the underweight fighting the heavyweight. Goliath would have won hands down. But David saw it through the eyes of faith. He was focused on who God was and who God's glory is. Many times in our lives, God will bring a trial, a difficulty, a need, and he'll reveal to us our own lack of resources. He'll say, Eric, look, you, you don't have hardly anything to bring to be able to meet that need. And that's a scary place, but it's a good place for us if we'll turn our eyes to the Lord and we'll look to him. In verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Mark chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said to the disciples, I want you to go out and go and see how many loaves there are. So Christ says, go out and find out how much food there is. Andrew was willing to do it, and he comes back with five barley loaves and two fish. And he feels kind of bad about it. He's saying, what, what's five loaves of fish and two bread? Other way around. There was five bread, two fish, right? What's that going to do to be able to, to meet the need? And this really stands out to me, and it's make an attempt. Make an attempt. God wants us to make an attempt. He wants us to take the very little that we have and place it into his hands and allow him to do a work and to bless the very little that we have. 
But how many times do we say, I don't have hardly any time, so I'm not going to make an attempt? I've tried in my marriage, and it's failed and gotten me nowhere, so I'm done trying. I'm not going to make an attempt. I've tried serving the Lord before, and it's gone nowhere and led to frustration. I'm not going to make an attempt. There's so much darkness in society and culture and in the community. I've only got five loaves and two fish. Here's this sin that I've been struggling with for years and it has victory over my life. I'm not even going to make an attempt and God wants us to make an attempt. He does want us to realize the very little that we have, but he wants that little resource to be placed in his hands. He wants our brokenness to be placed in his hands. Elizabeth Elliot, she really puts this well, and bear with me, it's a long quote, but I think it's worth it. If the only thing you have to offer is a broken heart, you offer a broken heart. So in a time of grief, that recognition that this is the material for sacrifice has been a great strength for me, realizing that nothing that I have, nothing that I am, will be refused on the part of Christ. I simply give it to him as the little boy gave Jesus his five loaves and two fish with the same feeling of the disciples when they say, what is the good of that for such a crowd? Naturally, in almost anything I have to offer Christ, my reaction would be, what is the good of that? The point is, the use he makes of it is none of my business. It's his business. It's his blessing. So this grief, this loss, this suffering, this pain, whatever it is, which at the moment is God's means of testing my faith and bringing me to the recognition of who he is, that is the thing I can offer. Is your heart broken? And all you've got is to give God your broken heart, then that's what he wants. And I love how Elizabeth Elliot points out, it's his blessing. He gets to decide what he does with the five loaves and the two fish. But the important thing is we need to put it in his hands. We need to make an attempt. In verse 10, then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. This is not including women and children. So that very easily could have been 10,000 plus. Christ in his wisdom has everybody sit down in groups of 50 to 100, Mark tells us. If you've ever been a part of trying to meet a physical need, it's very important that it's done with order and organization and some structure. And so Jesus has everybody sit down. This could have been mayhem. It's difficult to feed lunch to six people when everybody's hungry. When the Cartier family's hungry, there needs to be some order to that process, right? Imagine this huge multitude of people. And Jesus took the loaves And when he'd given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. Takes the bread, takes the fish, blesses them, breaks them, passes them out. God multiplies, multiplies. How fun this would have been for the disciples. They have the best seat in the house. They get to keep coming back for more watching this miracle take place. The joy of serving the Lord is you get to see his glory in a way that we wouldn't if we didn't serve him. This must have taken quite a bit of time, 
When you think about the possibility of 10,000 people and I'm sure these waiters, the disciples, were pretty tired by, by the end of this. Jesus is showing us symbolically, as we'll learn next week, that he's the bread of life. And this bread that is being broken is a picture of Jesus that would be broken on the cross to meet our greatest need, the need spiritually that we have. It's a physical lesson to point to the spiritual reality of Christ. I also think God is depicting for us what it looks like for our lives to be in his hands. That he'll take our small lives, our little lives, and he will break them for the purpose of blessing our lives to be used for his glory. Verse 12, so when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Jesus has another instruction for the disciples. I want you guys to go get the leftovers. Who loves leftovers, right? Man, you have the heart of Jesus, all five of you that love leftovers. (laughs) (laughs) and as they gather the leftovers there's an important lesson for the disciples verse 13 therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten 12 disciples 12 baskets of leftovers where did the disciples begin this is an enormous need that we can't meet all we've got It's five loaves and two fish. And by the end of it, everybody has had all that they wanted. They got to eat until they were completely full. Plus, there's 12 baskets of leftovers. Now, there could have been eight baskets of leftovers or 13 baskets of leftovers. But Jesus made it exactly 12 to teach the disciples of saying, look, I'm able to care for your need. And he'll remind the disciples of this later on. You may be saying, this is great for the disciples, but how about me? I've never witnessed God feeding the 5,000, feeding this great multitude. I suggest to you, we've experienced something greater. How so? Jesus, the bread of life, broken for our sin. And we remember the broken body of Jesus Christ when we're dealing with difficulty in our lives. God, if you can solve my sin problem, you can also see me through this difficult uh, situation. We hold on to not a leftover, a basket, one basket for us, but the finished work of Jesus on Calvary. Verse 14, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Speaking of Deuteronomy 18, 15, the prophecy of this great prophet that would come into the world. Verse 15, things shift Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. They want Jesus to be the bread king. They're looking at him from a materialistic view. Who wouldn't want Jesus to be the king? This can really affect my monthly budget when it comes to groceries. If this is what he can do with five loaves and two fish, imagine what he could do to the Roman Empire who's oppressing the nation of of Israel. He's gonna bring deliverance in our lives and they try to force Jesus to be king and Jesus will have nothing of it. And now he departs into a mountain to be alone and, and to pray. You can't force Jesus to be king. He already is king. Jesus isn't interested in winning the general election. Saying we've now 
chosen Christ to be king. We're forcing him to be what we want. He is king and we surrender to him being our Lord. In verse 16, now when the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum. Mark 6, 45 tells us that Jesus sent them across the Sea of Galilee. He says, guys, get in the boat and cross over while Jesus goes to be alone in the mountain to pray. Jesus sent them into the storm, and that's important for us to understand. That there'll be times in our relationship with God for our benefit that God says, Eric, you need to go into this storm. There's things that you're only going to learn about me through this storm, through uh, this difficulty. So if you find yourself in a storm, remember that God is the God of the storm. Jesus is the God of the storm. And God in his sovereign love for us, he will send us directly into a storm. And it was already dark and Jesus had not come to them. Jesus waits to come to them. He lets them struggle for a while. Sometimes in a storm, we know that God has promised to be with us and he is with us. But he's not necessarily revealing himself to us and gives us a time of struggle, gives us a time of of toil and a time of difficulty. He waits, in essence, to bring the breakthrough. In verse 18, then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, why didn't these guys give up? Why didn't they just turn around? Why didn't they let the wind take them back to where they had come from? Because Jesus had given them instruction. Jesus had told them, hey, you need to go to the other side. And to their credit, they continue rowing for three or four miles. Now, rowing on a calm sea for three or four miles would be difficult, let alone in a storm where you're headed right into the wind. And this brings us to another point of emphasis, and it's keep rowing in the right direction. Keep rowing in the right direction. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, long obedience in the right direction. God has called you. He said, look, I want you to do this, and it gets difficult, and what's the easy thing to do is to give up. Maybe it's in your marriage, and you say, man, my marriage is difficult. The boat seems to be sinking, I'm going to give up. And God would say, keep rowing in the right direction. Be obedient to what God has called you to do. You don't know what God is going to do. You may be in an intense time of difficulty in your marriage, but you don't know what breakthroughs God has in store. One of the things that I really enjoy doing is visiting people from our church as they're in the end season of their life. It's a real privilege of a pastor. And to see older couples in their 80s and their 90s who have journeyed together and not given up during the hard times. And what a joy that they have. And if you want that, you're going to have to press through this difficult season that you're in and dispel the lie that divorce is going to be better. Look at it accurately. Look at it biblically. Look at the damage that divorce is going to bring in your life. It's not better somewhere else. It's better exactly where God has you and press in 
and keep rowing, keep going. Maybe it's a difficulty with one of your children. You say, I'm done. Well, God has given you that child. God has commissioned us as parents to pray for them and love them and invest in them. Don't give up. Keep rowing. Keep going. Right into the wind. Say, God, I'm going to be faithful even though I feel like giving up. Maybe you're in a job that feels like a sinking ship and you're like, if you knew my boss, you would not keep going. Yet God hasn't opened up a job somewhere else. You keep going. You keep being faithful. Keep rowing. And that direction that the Lord has placed you in. Maybe you're single and you're saying, I'm tired of being single. I wanted to be married years ago and I'm still single and it's, it's difficult to live out sexual integrity. I'm done. I, I'm, I'm just going to give up. No, God wants you to keep rowing in the direction that he's called you to and trust him that he'll bring the right person at the right time or that he's wanting you to be single and to meet you in that place of, of singleness. But get the picture. All it takes is for the disciples to stop rowing. And as soon as they stop rowing, they're going in the opposite direction that God has called them to. And some of you might be saying, I'm not giving up, but I'm not pressing in. But by giving up, you're going to go the opposite direction that God has called you to. So this idea is you engage. It's not just saying, I'm going to be indifferent, or I'm going to stay in a terrible marriage and we're going to be roommates. That's not the idea at all. It's that you go on the offensive to what God has called you to and say, I'm going to pursue the Lord and I'm going to pursue my spouse even if they're not being who they are supposed to be. I'm going to press into my child's life even though they're being difficult. I'm going to press into Monday morning and I'm going to do my best under the Lord even though this is a really difficult job situation that I'm in. That's what the Lord's desiring and that's what we see in the disciples because we don't know what's around the corner. Continuing in verse 19, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. So here comes Christ, and they see him walking on the water, but they have the response of being afraid. Matthew and Mark tell us that this was the fourth watch of the night, which would be between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Christ allowed them to row all night long. It's dark, it's stormy. They've never seen anybody walking on the water before. They believe that it's a ghost. Try to put yourself in their shoes, in their boat. You're hanging out at Pueblo Reservoir. And something happens. There's a storm. It's dark, and you're out there at 3 in the morning. And you see someone walking on the water, you'll be like, what the heck? I always knew Pueblo was weird. <laughs> like, this is a nice lake and everything, but I need to get out of here. I should not be hanging out at Pueblo Reservoir, right? So they're afraid. And I think that there's a lesson in this for us as well, is that in the storm, it's going to be much more difficult to recognize Christ. When Jesus was feeding the 5,000, it was really easy to recognize Christ. This is my Savior. He is rocking it right now. He's taking these five loaves and two fish and feeding a huge multitude. I see him real clearly. But now I'm in the storm. Now I'm in the difficulty and I'm having a hard time recognizing him. So if you're having a hard time distinguishing the Lord right now in the midst of a storm, you're in good company. 
Be encouraged by that. I think that's normal as we journey through storms. But don't miss that Jesus is walking on the water. The waves that are rocking the boat of the disciples is underneath the feet of Jesus. And the storm that is threatening our very existence is underneath the feet of Jesus. The storm is not greater than Christ. Verse 20, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Christ's response is, don't fear because it's me. Throughout scripture, God's answer to fear is his presence. Here, I'm with you, and because I'm with you, you don't need to be afraid. If I'm one of the disciples, I'm thinking, you know, my fear would be diminished if you calmed the storm first. But Jesus says, you don't need to be afraid while the storm is raging because he's present. The storm's still going on at this point when Jesus says, it's I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. They bring Jesus into the boat and immediately the boat then is on the other side and the storm is stopped and they see Christ in a greater way and they worship him for being God. There's an aspect of understanding who God is that will only be revealed to us through the storm. We can look back in our lives and go, oh yeah, this was a really hard time. This was a very difficult season. But this is how God met me and I understood who Jesus was in a greater way. And we need to be encouraged in the current storm that we're going through. Paul would even say that he glories in tribulation. Would encourage us to glory in in trial and difficulty because God is growing us and he's teaching us more about himself. What a day for the disciples. First looking like they're going to get some rest. Then here comes this multitude. Jesus is like, you feed them. I don't want to feed them. I want to rest. I don't have any resource to be able to feed this great multitude. Why don't you just send them away? Send them packing without a falafel. They don't need it, right? But then Christ does this miracle and they're rejoicing. Then Jesus is like, all right, guys, get in the boat. Go to the other side. No problem. These guys are fishermen. We got this. But then here comes this huge storm. I'm sure they were having discussion. Why don't we just give up? But they kept rowing. They kept going. Go from such excitement to fearing for their lives. Then Jesus gets in the boat, and they're on the other side. Talk about a day, right? Anything can happen as we journey with the Lord. So some applications for us this morning, and the first is this, is see Jesus as the bread of life. Jesus is not just looking to meet a material need, but he's looking to be the bread of life, to nourish us spiritually, to meet our greatest need. Christ will test us to reveal our hearts and to show us the end of our resources. Church, brother and sister in Christ, it is a great place to be if we're feeling overwhelmed. It's a great place to be if we're in a position of saying, I don't have what it takes to get through this. God, I need your wisdom, your guidance, your blessing. And in the midst of that, make an attempt. Don't get discouraged, but make an attempt. Give God your five loaves and two fish. Give him that little bit of strength and that broken heart and place it in his hands and then trust that he's going to do what he sees fit. 
and keep rowing. As we're in the storm, Jesus is the God of the storm and to keep rowing. I'm sure for some, if not many this morning, this is applicable for you. It's applicable for me in in some situation. I'm sure some of you came in this morning and you have already planned to give up on your marriage. Some are not going to file for divorce, but you've completely given up. And God's saying, that's not enough. He wants you to re-engage. He wants you to keep rowing. Some of you are planning the divorce. Maybe you're already in the final stages of the divorce. And you have created this world in your mind that your life is going to be better after the divorce. Don't hold this against me, but I happened to be listening to the country station yesterday. I don't know why, but I don't like country music. But I, on the dial, I was there. I may have lost my salvation, I'm not sure. But, <laughs> but the DJ, he, he said that this lady and her ex wrote this song together. And that's how the world wants to present divorce. That you can get divorced... And then after you're divorced, you're going to be best friends and writing songs together. Lie, lie, lie. Doesn't work that way, right? Two, become one flesh. How do you tear apart one flesh? And as you keep rowing and you make that attempt, you're giving God room to do a great work in your heart and in your life. What's the reason for divorce? Jesus told us it was the hardness of heart. Maybe it is in your job, in your education with children, singleness. Keep rowing. Keep going. That long obedience in the same direction because you don't know how Christ is going to work. You don't know how Christ is going to deliver. And see from a broader perspective that it's not just about getting through the storm. It's not just about the marriage getting better or your child doing better. As important as all of those things are, is that God is trying to show us more of himself. And we may be missing out on a great opportunity to experience Jesus in a greater way if we just give up. And as we choose to press in and keep rowing, to rely upon his power and his strength, say, Lord, help me. So let's stand together and let's pray this in. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. You're the bread of life. You nourish and you feed our souls. And we see all of these needs in our lives and in our community and difficulty. And we don't have a lot to offer compared to the need. And we feel like Andrew, who's just got five loaves and two fish, but this morning we offer that to you. We put our brokenness and our resources in your hands. We want to be fully submitted to you. And the storms that we are going through and the storms that we will go through in the future, would you help us to be obedient to what you've called us to? I pray for those that they're struggling in their marriage and feeling like giving up, that you would encourage them. I pray for those that are struggling with kids and are overwhelmed and crying out to you for answers. 
Lord, would you give them strength and give them hope? Help them to not give up. Lord, for those in their finances that are just overwhelmed, wondering how they're gonna pay their mortgage and pay rent and get groceries, Lord, would you encourage them to keep going, to keep pressing in, and that you would provide for them. For those that are single and are tired of being alone and desiring to be married, God, would you meet them and help them to continue to walk in obedience. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.